Before we get started on today's episode, it's important that we as the Sin Skeptics make it clear that we stand with SAG-AFTRA and the WGA in their strike. This podcast is for the purpose of review and not promoting struck work. Thank you, and we hope you two support SAG-AFTRA and WGA in their fight for fair wages and better circumstances. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Been a long time, but we're proud to welcome you back to Cineskeptics, the show where we believe in letting people enjoy things, but also letting them not enjoy things. My name is James Preston Poole. I'm Mark Tan. I'm Jacob. I am Become Death, the Destroyer of Worlds, aka Mark, aka Mank. And. We have a new fifth host joining us who will be part of our crew permanently. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Rascal. It's nice to meet you. Here to be cynical, but also allow you to have an opinion. What a perfect introduction. So, boys, today, before we get into the business that everyone can see from the title, let's discuss. It's, it's been a long, long time since we potted together. So I think we all should rattle off some movies that maybe we loved from this past year since we've been recording, or, you know, movies that stuck out in our mind negatively. And I think the best place to start would be our new host, Rascal. What'd you like? What didn't you like from 2023 so far? I loved They Clone Tyrone. That was fantastic. Um, we'll get into Barbenheimer a little bit later, but also Cocaine Bear. Megan, I wasn't a big fan of 65. I thought it was a very ambitious jump. It was a good film, though. It wasn't great, but it was, it was good. It was entertaining. How about you guys? There's been a lot of movies that came out, and I've had a fairly wide reaction to a lot of them. So we're going to get into Barbenheimer later on, but I definitely am leaning more positive on those than negative. One of the other movies that I saw this year that has never left my mind since I saw it is Ari Aster's Bill Was Afraid, which is just an absolute wild ride. I feel like that's one of those movies where you should just know nothing about it going into it and just let all the crazy events in that movie just unfold for you for the first time. I agree with Rascal. I think Megan was a really strong horror movie that came out very early in the year. I also think Horror generally was pretty solid this year. We had Evil Dead Rise and Scream 6, both of which were very solid. As a lover of action, I'm happy to say that John Wick Chapter 4 and Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 were as good as I had hoped that they would be. And the same goes for even stuff like Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Certainly, when it comes to the best movies of the year, I'm very much positive on all that. And I can't really think of a lot of complaints with any of the ones that I've mentioned. On the flip side, there are definitely some movies that came out this year that I pretty much loathe. Probably the one that I hated the most this year was the Apple TV Plus original movie, Ghosted, which feels like the epitome of ChatGPT the movie, because not only does that movie just feel like the most like, bare-bones example of like a bad action comedy, but even the performances by people you know who can act like Chris Evans and Anna Diarmas. Even they feel struggled under the material, and I just feel like every 
time the movie wants to convince us that they have chemistry, I just want to scream to the TV that they absolutely have zero chemistry. In fact, they even have, I'd say they have negative chemistry because that like every time they have scenes together, it just feels like not even like acquaintance. It's almost like strangers being together and just not having a good time with each other, being forced to say, oh, yeah, we have this good relationship. Oh, we are a romantic couple. But no, it is like the most unconvincing thing I've seen all year. And given that we've dealt with a couple of bad Kenya Barris movies, we've had a bad Disney live action remake with The Little Mermaid. Even with all those movies being bad, I still think Ghosted is still like the one that stands out as being like the worst thing I've seen all year. But does it have a moment like you people where they uh, CGI kiss between the two leads at the end? That's the reason why you people's not the worst movie I've seen all year because there was that amazing CG kiss, and I feel like yeah. that should be in every movie ever made. All right, Jacob, you can go ahead and rattle yours off. I'm going to just give you the top four, bottom four with a quick little reasoning why. So we'll start with the best four because we tend to like to do the, the best stuff and then the worst stuff. But number four, I give it a bow as afraid. I don't even really know if I particularly like the movie. Damn, that movie is affecting as hell. Uh, number three, give it a John Wick 4, because that shit rips and rules. Don't even have to go any further on it. Number two, got to go to Bottoms. Watch that at South by Southwest, premiering here at the end of this month of August 2023. I don't think the marketing does it any justice, because... It is so, so much its own thing, and the comedy is so irreverent and so unique. I don't even really know how to put it into words, and I, I don't envy any of the marketing people, to be completely honest with you. And my favorite movie of the year so far has to go to Past Lives. I had to sit outside the theater for a good 10 minutes just to collect myself. That was a fucking movie right there, man. I'll tell you what. And we get to the bottom four. My fourth least favorite movie of the year has to also go to a South by Southwest premiere, and that is Flamin' Hot. That movie, more than anything, was just disappointing, and it had a lot of potential to be really good, and like the first hour or so was really ambitious. Then it turned into like a self-help movie for the remainder of the movie, like some kind of Hallmark shit. My third least favorite goes to Burt Crusher's The Machine. Not even that much of a Burt Crusher fan. I never really got into him. My dad really wanted to go see it, so we watched it. And the only reason why it isn't last is because I watched it with my dad, and I had a good time with him, but that shit was ass. How does it feel to be the one person in the world who, uh, well, I guess two, with your dad that went to go see Burt Kreischer's The Machine? I completely forgot that I had watched it until I pulled up my list of movies I've seen this year, and this was on it. I was like, oh yeah, that's a fucking movie. It is Far and away, the epitome of doo-doo, dog shit, supreme-ass movie. And not even Mark Hamill can save it. But anyways, second least favorite goes to that House Party remake. I love the old House Party movies. You know, I think for that movie, it's really just kind of like, hey, remember all these movies from the 90s where it's like Love and Basketball and uh, Belly and shit like that? It's like they, they try to take things from those and put it in this movie and it doesn't make any damn sense. And the worst part, the cardinal sin of this movie is that they made the house party lame as shit. Like, you, you can't have a house party movie and make it, like, the actual party of the movie fucking lame. It's just upsetting. It's ridiculous. We're going to go to this last one here. My least favorite movie of the year has to be that fucking doo-doo-ass, Super Mario-ass movie. That shit can go to hell. I'm glad people love it. I don't. That movie can go 
suck a dick from the back. That's my thoughts. Wow, from the back. <laughs> and on that note, uh, Mink, you, you sound you sound appropriately shell shocked enough to go ahead and rattle off yours. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not seeing straight right now, so I'm not quite sure I can do this, but uh, I will I'll push through. If you guys mentioned some of uh, my list, Jacob mentioned past lives, which is definitely I think in my you know top five of the year so far. Um, you know, Mark mentioned Evil Dead Rise, which I thought was great. I think probably my top three excluding oppenheimer barbie um i thought you know mission impossible great if not a little bit of a mild i don't even want to say disappointment coming off fallout but it's still super fun and a great time and just really shows you why you know i guess you know despite some folks who don't love him tom cruise is just continuing to all the crazy standard of the, you know, at the box office and the theater. So, but I think the ones that really stood out to me a bit on the lower kind of scale side on um, Sanctuary, which was with Margaret Qualley and Chris Abbott. So I think it was, you know, it was billed as a pretty hardcore erotic thriller and it's really not. I mean, it has elements of that psychosexual stuff going on, but it's actually sincere with a lot of I think what, what it's trying to explore about like identity between both characters and their and their purposes and how they fit into like social structures and then how to blow up a pipeline I thought was incredible I thought it was a really really tight or that kind of harkened back to 70s movies and you could totally see a movie like that having come out you know 50 years ago that was a reaction to the politics of the time but yeah i just thought it was an incredible movie that i think adapted a book that was more kind of historical and focused and not as fictionalized but that one and then honorable mentions i think for you know like the good blockbusters i thought something that was a surprise was dungeons and dragons um i i take no uh, pride in saying i told you so but i thought all the trailers look super fun and I think it really shines through in the writing, but also just someone like Chris Pine, who I think has been tried and pushed to be a leading man, but he's really at his best when he's kind of just being, you know, weird and a kind of like subversion on that on that leading man. But yeah, I thought that was great. And Knock of the Cabin was great, too. That was this year, right? Earlier in the yeah. year? Okay, yeah. I'm surprised no one didn't mention as far as movies they didn't like was Ant-Man, Quantumania, which was, as Jacob would say, doo-doo shit or whatever he says <laughs> it's because no one watched it that's why that's true that's true uh but honestly i don't i don't want to spend too much time on things i didn't like because i think we're having a pretty damn good year at the movies unfortunately some of the big ones are flopping but i think it's also a pretty good and telling sign that audiences are starting to catch on to the fact that they want to see well-made things and not just you know conveyor belt i can dig that absolutely there's a lot I really liked this year. Uh, I'll come right out the gate and say, in terms of movies, other than Barbenheimer, of course, that I'm going to remember forever, there are three that really come to mind. John Wick Chapter 4, I think, to me, was borderline revolutionary in terms of action filmmaking. And it's every action sequence in that movie, every character moment, every beat, just the way it moves feels perfect so impossibly perfect that it's almost exhausting talk to me i think is a really strong 
debut feature from Raka Raka and also managed to be one of the few movies recently that's actually scared me. And then, of course, two out of the five of us have already brought it up, but Bo is afraid. When else are you going to see a movie like that, ever? Not before, not since. It's wholly original, and I love the dark comedy of just watching this dude have the absolute worst week or few days of his life. It's such great pitch black comedy. I also really enjoyed Joyride. That one was one that kind of snuck up on me and was a lot stronger than I thought it would be. A problematic fave, I I gotta say this, I thought The Flash was a lot of fun and saw it a ton of times. And I already know the comments are gonna come after me for that. You ain't never lied, brother. Breach. The Flash. More like the ass. Disclaimer, Jacob has not seen The Flash. But I want to actually borrow some of Rascal's words here and say that that movie's like a Tim Burton, Zack Snyder fever dream. And I couldn't have put it better myself. In terms of things I didn't like, there wasn't any movie this year where I was really like, oh my god, that was god-awful. There were a couple disappointing ones for me. I didn't really love what Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 did with its characters. Sorry, rascal, about this one. I thought the new Transformers was just kind of boring, especially compared to the um, energy of the Bay films and uh, Bumblebee. The only movie I think I outright just bored me to tears was Tetris from Apple. Just a really lifeless biopic that's trying so hard to be something energetic, but it's just kind of lame at the end of the day. Oh, one more movie I really did like. I thought that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 was outstanding for a superhero movie. And uh, I am really going to miss those characters and James Gunn's interpretation and wish him well on his ventures in DC. But yeah, not a lot of bad from me. Just a lot of, a lot of things I loved, a lot of things I didn't feel so strongly about. I'll say I did just see Talk to Me as well um, on Friday. I thought it was great. I would recommend that. Funny, my mom, who is like like 73, but she loves going to the movies, she to me and she said, oh, I saw you got tickets for that. Are you going? And she went and she thought it was great, too. And I think it's just cool because like I don't remember seeing a trailer in a theater for that movie during anything I've seen this year. And I think I saw that it already made more. It's like four million dollar budget, mm-hmm. which is great. Like I know it did great. Was it at South by that it first premiered? It premiered at Sundance, and then it showed again at South By. Jacob and I were actually at the um, South By premiere, and the energy in that room was just infectious. Everyone knew that we had a banger on our hands. My theater was packed, too. I mean, it's always like a little bit of an excuse experience going to a movie theater in a coastal city like New York, but it's great to see people were coming out for little things, you know? And I think at the same time, like, they're... Movies that I saw this year that were probably pretty forgettable than that I'm not even thinking of, but I think that you're able to see that in a theater right now and just have like maybe an okay experience is still a big step from where we were, I think, a few years ago. Absolutely. All right, so I guess now it's time for our main event. We are going to be discussing Barbenheimer today. For the uninitiated, Barbenheimer is the unofficial name given to the massive release of both Greta Gerwig's Barbie adaptation and Christopher Nolan's historical drama Oppenheimer. Many people 
did double features with these two. I attempted to, but due to a um, projector failure at the theater, I drove four hours to go. Not bitter at all about it. I could only end up seeing Barbie that night, but I have seen both films. Did either of you boys attempt to do the Barbenheimer double feature? I did. I made a whole day out of it. I did as well. Started at 12, I think, with Oppenheimer, and then finished with Barbie at 6. I will say it it was a little jarring. <laughs> I thought it would be good to get like that palate cleanse from Barbie, but I have now seen Oppenheimer three times, so I think the effect has not worn off, but it's a little more, it's less intense now. But yeah, it, it was definitely an experience going from the heavy stuff to Barbie, but I think that's exactly what probably needed. Barbie was the heavy stuff, brother. It was the I cried more at Barbie. I cried twice during Barbie. I didn't cry at all during Oppenheimer. Cry, baby. Hey. I unfortunately didn't get a chance to do the double feature because my family could only make it on Sunday, and they all wanted to go see Barbie. And as for me, since I was on a vacation for the entire time the first weekend of Barbenheimer was out, I didn't get a chance to watch both movies there. So basically what happened was around halfway through my vacation... I found a couple hours of free time to sneak in Barbie. It wasn't until I got back from my vacation that I saw Oppenheimer, and that was basically like a full week after Barbenheimer came out. There wasn't really any opportunity for me to have the full Barbenheimer experience. I mean, Mank, you've already said this. Barbie is a lot more emotionally packed than I think any of us could have expected. It might have been wise on my part to watch them both on separate days. And although Oppenheimer certainly this big hefty movie, I'm, I'm not going to say like that movie is like small in any way, but certainly given the expectations, I felt like Oppenheimer was as grand as I thought it was going to be, while Barbie was a much more effective and affecting movie than I think any of us could have seen coming. It really speaks to the idea that if you put great movies in theaters, people go see them. I haven't met a lot of people who have only planned to see Barbie or only planned to see Oppenheimer. There seems to be a great fervor for both of them. And that both movies uh, have had this amazing critical reception, which is going to make our jobs a little harder because we don't have uh, enough to rag on. That being said, let's get started with Barbie. Now, Rascal, what did you think of Barbie? So I personally thought Barbie was fantastic. I gave it a four and a half out of five on Letterboxd. I went into this movie after seeing so many tweets about how sad it was. And I was like, hey, it can't be that sad. It won't do that. And I walked out of that movie with a completely different perception than when I went in. That movie's a gut wrencher, man. But what I will say is this is what I should have expected simply because it's a Greta Gerwig movie. Greta Gerwig has this thing about her films where she goes for your jugular. She makes you think. She makes you wonder. There's always going to be that bit of feminism. And I guess people weren't expecting that. And that's why it's getting these rash, super weird, over-the-top reactions from, like, anti-feminist people. I don't, I don't know what we can call them. Because it's very strange to me that... Assholes is what you can call them? We can call them assholes. I'll go with that. So these assholes who took this wonderful movie about how women can be more. Because that's essentially what it was. It was women can be anything. They can be more. And just tried this shit on it. It's so weird because I'm sitting in the movie theater surrounded by women. You can tell, like, they're, they're women. They're doctors, lawyers, they're moms. Like, it doesn't matter. That's what the movie's about. The movie is just about that they're women. 
and they could be whatever they want to be. And for somebody to have such a negative, rash, crazy, over-the-top reaction, like a Ben Shapiro or a Michelle Beadle, fuck you, Michelle Beadle, that, that's crazy to me. The crazy part of Barbie is that you think that with Greta Gerwig being the director and the co-writer, you think that this would only be about just how versatile women can be. But it turns out, certainly about halfway through, she definitely has a lot to say about how men should function in society, not just in the Barbie land that we see in the fictional world, but also in the real world depicted in this movie, and also just our real world. And that this is very much not just about uh, Barbie learning to be in the real world, but also Ken is in the real world. And he grabs onto the fact that in his Barbie land, you know, he is very much kind of a second class citizen in a way compared to all the, the Barbies working there. And when he goes into the real world, his big realization that, wow, this is a, a world dominated by men. So like a big part of the story is what would happen if Barbie land was exactly like the real world. So Ken takes the inspiration of the patriarchy in the real world, and he basically transforms Barbie Land to be the most ridiculous uh, male-run society that you can imagine. I mean, not just the fact that the one of the big visual themes in Ken Land is the amount of horses there are, but also just how much men just sort of like revel and how much power they have and not really knowing what to do with it. And you think that this would be a case of like, oh, men are bad. Like they can never improve if they have a lot of power. But when you get to the big message near the end of the movie, it's very much about how nuance is the key. It's not about men having nothing or men having everything. It's just basically let's give men you know, their time to shine, but let's also give women their time to shine. And the fact that we have these assholes react as if this is only an anti-men movie. It's like as if they never had watched the final 20, 25 minutes of this movie because I think it's a lot kinder to just people in general than the stereotypes that are generated from this movie. And I think it's a testament to Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, who both wrote the script, that they do spend this much time showing how not only that Barbie can grow, but Ken can grow as well. It's as if the people who are complaining have never seen a movie and thought critically about it before. Because it really spells it out, like you said in those last 20-25 minutes, that the movie is just as much about the constraints that like adhering to specific gender roles can put on people. It's like there are people just looking for blood in the water. I mean, with any movie that uplifts women or any group that isn't given the spotlight all the time, people are always going to go in and look to complain and bitch about it, but there's not a lot to misinterpret in Barbie, so it's kind of impressive how people have managed to misinterpret it as much as they have. I mean, it should also not be controversial for the movie to say the things that it does. It's funny because you know, I think every day, like in all of our different walks of life, we're confronted with, despite the fact that we claim to be such a progressive society you know we often aren't and the fact that we do have to continue to say these things that like america forever has to have big speech which i'm sure angered and made a lot of those assholes we talked about you know roll their eyes in the theater but it's like those are the same people who need to hear that kind of thing i think you also have to probably acknowledge that folks went to this for like the barbenheimer meeting and probably have not been to a be in years so 
I think unfortunately that just speaks to some of the media literacy issues. But to your point, you know, it's like people will find a way to get out of about something, especially when it confronts a lot of the stuff head on. Again, it's, it should not be that controversial. It's not that nuanced. I think the one thing I do want to say about the movie is that Greta Gerwig really does have, I think, that thing, whatever it is. And I, I know, like, I do this a lot, and a lot of people lament about young, exciting original filmmakers getting followed up by the studio system. But we only kind of really say that because of seeing how their stylistic identity and creativity is stifled. But, you know, this movie is a very, very original it might not be quite, you know, quite subversive. I think what people were expecting, it definitely subverts that. But the fact that she got much of her own voice and personality through it, able to make this leap, while a lot of her other peers have struggled to kind of go from that indie world to big blockbuster filmmaking. And you know, if you watch interviews with her, like, she has a very, very impressive and serious love for not just please, but like the craft and her her awareness of film history is so strong and obviously like her being married to Noah Baumbach helps, but like she is totally her own artist. And I think that's awesome. And if she wants to make these big movies, then by God, let her, she's incredibly talented and has proved with this movie that she can work within the studio system and still turn out something that very much has its own identity as well. Again, like I don't, I would love to continue to see her, original things but like i couldn't stop thinking like she would probably make a great superman movie have the because she had like just that sincerity you know and like i rewatched little women recently with my girlfriend too and like she really just gets that sweetness and sincerity without it being overly you know sweet or twee rascal put it really well that Greta gerwig's movies almost have this superhuman touch that just cuts deep into you makes you think makes you ponder uh I loved Barbie. I thought it was great. It starts off almost as kind of like the 2003 or what's it 2003? The, the Scooby-Doo movie that we all know and love, the live action one, where it's this fun pastiche of the Barbie world. But then it, it evolves as it goes on to, you know, be a movie that, yes, is feminist and yes, it's about gender roles. But at the end of the day, is also about, you know, discovering what you want to be and getting yourself out of the rut of thinking you're not good enough. As a wise man once said, uh, you are enough. And I think that's kind of the message of the movie and that's something universal that everyone could take away from it. It's one of those movies that's so, so good and well put together that all I can really say is it's damn good. Greta Gerwig knocked it out of the park. It is. And with Barbie, Barbie showed me one thing. Movies are not marketed anymore. The marketing of a movie for to get people excited to go to the movie theaters. And now I feel like everything has to almost be an event film. And I talked to you about that, James, at the Haunted, whenever we went to go see Haunted Mansion. That movie would have been a really big release in October at the theater because you could have turned it into an event. Now I feel like they're going to use that quote-unquote event theme. And I talked to Mark about this whenever he edited my review. They're going to use that for Disney+. Plus. They're going to try to make it an event for Disney+. Plus. You can watch it at home. You and your kids can, you know, you guys can get dressed, yada, yada, yada. Like, they're going to try to make it an at-home thing. But I think that that's not the message. Like, not the message in the movie, but just, like, how it's making all of this money. That movie had people excited. There were progressive commercials. 
There was a Barbie cup. There was popcorn. There were drinks at the movies. There were milkshakes at Studio Movie Grill. Like, they went all out with the marketing for Barbie. It was wear pink to the movies, dress up like Barbie. Which Barbie are you? There was a lot of marketing. And it wasn't just social media. It was on TV as well. And I feel like we lost that whenever it comes to putting a movie in the theaters. I mean, I remember Batman cups and Rugrats watches and Happy Meals and kids meals at burger king like we've lost that part of marketing a movie to be in the movie theaters now we like everybody wants people to go to the movies and these studios want people to go to the movies they don't spend any money on marketing like i don't know how many times i saw people say they didn't know haunted mansion was coming out or they didn't know this this movie was coming out another thing that studios missed out on they saw barbie and don't get me wrong there were Plenty of movies aimed towards women that came out this year. Two that I can think of off the top of my head that aren't Barbie are The Book Club Chapter 2, Mafia Mama, and um, Joyride. So that's three. Those movies should have had better marketing, more marketing. There were Joyride has an entire K-pop scene. K-pop is super popular. For that movie to, I mean, it, it kind of just skated by. It's very weird to me that those aren't the lessons that we got from Barbie were marketing and gearing more movies towards women. Even though we got a few, there should be more and they should actually be marketed. But I'm not David Zasloff. I'm not Bob Iger. Here we are. You know, if we went through Rascal's uh, marketing approach, I'd like a talk to me branded a pair of googly eye glasses. Yes, please. Um, Again, to Rascal's point, movies are also... And I've had to grapple with this, and I've all I used to fight against this, but they are unfortunately now a pretty damn expensive activity. And if you want to get people into those seats, you have to build that hype. You have to give them a reason to want to go to the movies, to be part of an event. The movie theaters, like it or not, the movies have to be these big events, or they have to be really, really well marketed towards certain groups that the movies are meant for, for them to hit big. And I really hope they can learn that lesson. I would have to agree to a point. I mean, like we had like, I mean, Talk To Me is performing really well. I mean, relatively speaking, I mean, it only made like 10 million. Barbie's almost at a billion and Oppenheimer's at half a billion right now. Total gross, you know, it's just crazy work going in. You know, I, I respect it. I mean, as far as like for me, for Barbie, I mean, y'all kind of hit the nail on the head. And I think kind of my takeaway really is like, you know, it's not this big nuanced piece of media and it does it, it that wasn't the the goal you know it was going to be this really straightforward really great thing that's it it was really well made it was really great the messaging was really well tactful and and well intentioned i think they did a damn good job with it i'm not going to really add on to anything y'all said cuz y'all kind of hit it on the head pretty well but i mean fuck those people who are like Ben Shapiro and whoever else who are like uh, they hate men. Oh, uh, they hate, you know, what other demographic of people who've been in power for fucking centuries upon centuries? I mean, who gives a shit? Those people are just going to keep saying what they're going to say. I don't give a shit about them. But um, if I did have to say one gripe I had with the movie, it felt like it was ending for 20 minutes. There was a point when the movie was ending. I was like, oh, my God, when are we going to hit credits on this? Because it just kind of was winding down for a good 20 minutes. No, I, I really loved it. I mean, I always knew I was going to love it because I think Greta Gerwig is, she's golden. Anything she touches is it whoops ass no matter what. I mean, like Lady Bird. I went to Catholic school for my elementary years, so I kind of got some PTSD watching Lady Bird when I watched it back in college. And uh, 
I mean, Little Women is just a banger movie. I just knew Barbie was going to be good, so I'm very glad it came out. It's whooping ass at the box office. Yeah. Now, I can't in all good conscience say that I thought our next movie was going to be good for one reason. When Oppenheimer was announced, I kind of dreaded it. I thought, oh great, another Christopher Nolan historical drama, because I know, and I know this is not a popular opinion, I thought Dunkirk was like watching paint dry. I thought it was very boring, the lack of perspective in the film really disconnected me from it, but whenever I finally saw Oppenheimer, I was completely blown away. Now, Oppenheimer is the story, of course, of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the man who invented the atomic bomb. And instead of the movie being a straightforward biopic, it's really a look at how scientific discovery, while in a vacuum, maybe, is something to be admired. Some Pandora's boxes aren't meant to be opened. And the way the movie built this excitement for discovery as well as this ultimate feeling of dread that coalesced in this all-timer ending really stuck with me. I thought the movie was mesmerizing in every way. I got the spicy Oppenheimer take. I thought when it was dealing with Oppenheimer, the development of the bomb and stuff like that, and it was kind of like this, this emotionally charged movie, a guy who wants to like leave something for the world his thought was like you know i'm going to create something great with the remnants of einstein's discoveries and things like that only for him to create one of man-made's greatest horrors and then for the movie to end the way that it did you know where he just kind of like revels in this just horrifying conclusion that fuck i'm going to be the reason the world is is over in the future right i thought all of that was interesting I think one of the most affecting parts of the movie is um, when you're in the, I think it was like the gymnasium. All the people were in the stands and they were hooting, hollering, having a really great time. And then he was having the vision of like what it would look like if the atomic bomb went off inside of there and somebody's face was like peeling off. That was affecting. You know, that really got to me. But Christopher Nolan, he kind of has this thing where he kind of... Drops into like the standard kind of blockbustery type of thing where he always has to have his kind of like dude's rule hook. And I think for this one, it was like that espionage thriller esque, like the courtroom drama stuff. And once it shifted to that, I fucking hated that shit. For me, it was like if you were to separate the two trains of thought, where it was like you had the emotionally charged, affecting Adam Bond movie, and then you had the, the courtroom drama espionage thriller. I think separately, those ideas are really great kind of by themselves. But when you put it together, I kind of think of it as kind of like ketchup and ice cream. And I, I just was just so put off just by how much it shifted because it just kind of turned into this jarbled mess where you had like uh, the solo guy, I forget his name, but... Elden Ehrenreich? Yeah, it's something like that. It was good, but it was like... They do this whole thing where it's kind of like, oh, yeah, RDJ is going to bring down Oppenheimer. And then it's like Oppenheimer's got the upper hand. He's like, what? I don't got the upper hand anymore. What the fuck? And then it cuts to that scene where he's like talking to Einstein at that little like creek outside of the university. Was it Princeton, I think? 
and then they had that conversation. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It just felt like it didn't really wrap in together. You know, I don't want to see it again. I think it was really good for what it was. There was a lot of good parts, and they make it sound like I really despise this movie, which I don't. I don't despise this movie. It's just like I was so disappointed whenever it shifted into what it shifted into. It's so odd to hear because that's when the movie kicked off for me. I love a good men in rooms talking kind of movie. I, I can't help it. I love courtroom dramas. So seeing the bureaucracy kind of swallow up Oppenheimer's invention and uh, the person himself showed the banality of evil and how bureaucracy will take anything they can and the people in charge will use it for their selfish means. It's hardly a new thought, but I guess it was really those performances, man. Like, Robert Downey Jr. absolutely killed it. Absolutely his best role since Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And you just have this never-ending murderer's row of great actors all looking to screw over Oppenheimer in some kind of way or to make sure that they're out on top. Yeah, it was crabs in a bucket all climbing towards the top. It was dope to me. It's so interesting to hear that 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 aspect of the movie would be the moment that you kind of deflated when it came on. It's a totally valid criticism, and I think anyone who has kind of an issue basically with what everything that happens post-Trinity test, uh, it makes sense. You know, I think love my first viewing of it. I think it is jarring because the real climax of the movie is that test, right? But if you are telling a story exclusively about the Manhattan Project, then you can probably end it there, right? It is about Oppenheimer himself. It's also about the other people. It's about the systems and the institutions as well. But I think, you know, you need that last hour to kind of see how he was kind of the architect of his, you know, of his own downfall in a way. The movie is, you know, there's a lot has been talked about, right? With reviews and people online talking about how the movie may or may not put Oppenheimer in too much of a potentially empathetic or sympathetic light, but I think Nolan doesn't really let him off the hook. I think he respects him, maybe, and I think he recognizes, I think he really believes he's the most important person in, in the history of the modern world, but it necessarily means that he fully endorses who he was. I think a lot of the movie is very clear the ways that Oppenheimer was kind of an, you know, an ideological coward. He doesn't really believe in anything if it means risking his own career and ambition, right? So, like, times when he's faced with having to stick to his moral or ethical principles, which are or that they are strong behind the scenes, when he has to, when he's uh, you know, at risk of not being put on the Manhattan Project, Josh Hartnett tells him he has to stop all his unionizing talk. And he does that immediately because he wants fame. You know, he wants that ambition. He wants that level of profile. But that's the thing that really gets him in the end. You know, not only does he obviously have ambition and hubris, he creates worst weapon in the history of mankind at the time, but also is taken down as a very tragic figure as well. And I think that complicated gray area of the movie is where it shines. And to that last hour, 
you know, Strauss as a character too was flustered, but he also wasn't necessarily wrong. He saw the way that Oppenheimer manipulated history and his profile to be both the hero and the martyr. Uh, yeah, I mean, I loved it. I'm sure we'll talk about it a little more, but I think it's, I really do think it's Nolan's best. I think it is a staggering achievement that so kind of far and above from a storytelling point of view and character point of view than anything he's done before. He's kind of worried because he's he hasn't always been the strongest with on an exposition. He's very, he's not subtle, but the way that he was able to handle and basically kind of turn in really darker Aaron Sorkin script, uh, I think is really, really impressive. It's a movie that is absolutely, in my opinion, damning to the man, J. Robert Oppenheimer. And the fact that it's really a story about a guy who's so wrapped up in his own intelligence and own ideas that he's constantly outrunning his own empathy, uh, whether it be throwing away his communist ideals um, just because he wants to be part of this cool science project, or pretty much throwing his life to the side constantly. He um, thinks it'll never catch up to him, and I think it was very powerful to see kind of the vultures coming for him at the end, whether they were right or wrong, and then him realizing not only has this shit destroyed him, his personal life, he am become death. <laughs> I noticed seeing it again this morning, you know, the whole Chevalier incident thing, which, by the way, is just like an incredible name. And I wish there was something in my life called the Chevalier incident. <laughs> but um, you know, that whole thing that kept coming up it would have never been an issue for him if he didn't try to give up kind of like somewhat fake information to the military because he wanted to deflect attention from people who like his friends and people he worked for who were either communists or you know communists whatever sympathizer sympathizers but he also wanted to be held in good standing with the military and the government you know but by doing that that would come back and bite him in the ass years later and be used as like a very explicit thing that he did that was you know what they thought was you know signs of espionage and treasonous behavior but I think it's just a super complicated story and it's, it really encourages a lot of discussion. Yeah, and I think one of the things that this movie does best is sort of toe the line between depicting Oppenheimer as this like genuine genius, but also someone who really doesn't have a great relationship with people in general. Certainly in the first hour, a lot of it involves scenes of J. Robert Oppenheimer talking about quantum physics with another person and the movie constantly cuts to shots of particles like swirling around and it's it happens so fast and so quick it's like you're thinking through his perspective like it's like he can just have these images just flash as if like he already knows like how everything works and certainly like all that like that frequent cutting it certainly helps people understand just how much he lives and breathes quantum physics but at the same time it's like yeah like if you look at every time he's in a scene with a woman whether it's you know the with his his wife or his mistress it's like he doesn't seem to know what to do with himself. He just seems almost like in awe of just their existence, but not really doing anything to sort of have a real connection with them. Like the closest it gets is every time we get to see Josh Hartnett's character, where it's like, like he is his equal, and it feels like there isn't a genuine friendship going on. 
but other than that it's almost like he's living an insular life and certainly when we get to the last hour of the movie which i I agree with james i think starting from like hour two to hour three like like all that stuff is just so enrapturous as far as how it depicts someone who's trying to grapple with the fact that they made this horrible thing and they he knows that people are going to not give him like all the credit because it's just like oh yeah you're just some scientist you're not like the actual guy who calls the shots but it's like without him you don't get the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki you know without him so like he's thinking all that and and something that I, I thought about is that in this movie we don't see any footage of those bombings and I know for some people it's like oh it's kind of a bad move to not show like the horrors that he actually caused but it's like this is a movie from his perspective I feel like he would be so horrified by that news that he it would not make any sense for us to see the actual bombings instead what we get are the shots like jacob mentioned earlier where he's giving the speech and in the middle of the speech like the background behind him it's all warping and then we have like the big light flashes and we see the various people in the audience having their body decayed and all that and i just think that the last hour is horrifying in the best way and i definitely love how the movie sort of dances around the conversation between oppenheimer and einstein because it seems like, oh, like they're they're just saying inside baseball. It's not something that we would ever relate to. But then we get when we get to the final scene of the movie where Oppenheimer's just basically like, Yeah, you know, uh, this is the thing that you're gonna be most famous for. It's like you're the one responsible for like like the downfall of humanity, basically. And it's like you have to live with that. And people are gonna not they're not gonna credit you. And it's like it's just this demoralizing thing to hear, you know, exchange between these two geniuses, and it's like I feel like that's the perfect note to end a movie like this on because this is not a typical biopic of J. Robert Oppenheimer and it's very much focused on like both the build up to the big event and also the aftermath, which very much explains the three hour runtime, which I will say like as far as that runtime is concerned, I might have been better off if some scenes were removed i mean i don't know if we needed a scene of one of the scientists playing out with bongos but i'd say for for most of this movie it's telling you every single reason why oppenheimer is a tragic figure both before the trinity test and after and the fact that the movie has this final image of just oppenheimer just staring off into the distance blankly is it's very much how anyone would feel if they were this genius who had made this technically impressive thing, but also something that's going to cause massive destruction. It's to the point where I'm almost kind of sad that this didn't immediately pop into like my new favorite Nolan movies, because this is just me being impatient. It's like, ah, I don't like the three hours. I wish it was like two hours, 40 or something like that. But as far as the, the writing concern and how, how Sorkin-y this feels, I feel like you know, that comparison is very much warranted. I can't really complain about it. I think from top to bottom, this is one of the few biopics I can think of that isn't focused on telling you the Wikipedia summary in the span of a feature length. I think this is really interested in the psychology of Oppenheimer, and I think it's for that reason that I feel like regardless of how you see this movie, whether it's an IMAX 70mm or 35mm or regular digital screening, it's like the impact I think is going to stay because it's, it's just about like what the images are conveying, regardless of how big those images might be. 
definitely see it in IMAX though. Quick note on the the format. I've I've seen it in Dolby 70 millimeter and then IMAX 70 millimeter and totally agree with what Mark said. Seeing it in any format is amazing, but seeing it today in IMAX 70 millimeter, the the bomb tests and then the uh, kind of gathering in the auditorium, those were just like truly, truly intense in a much more you know powerful way um, in that format. Like the way you feel and hear the the aftershock of the explosion is just like it's incredible. About the Trinity test sequence, one of the things that I absolutely adored is how much it plays around with the fact that light travels faster than sound. Because like throughout that sequence, it's always about seeing the explosion and then like a few seconds later, then you hear the explosion. And then we get to the actual big bomb. It's like we see the explosion and then like two minutes pass where you hear nothing. And up to that point, it's like all you hear are people you know, cheering, like being happy that the, the bomb was successful. And then after like those two minutes, you hear the big explosion. It's like just this delayed like double reaction and I feel like I've not seen that in a lot of movies certainly not recently so just to see that phenomenon happen which is very much a real thing it's just another step to show like how committed Nolan is to depicting the reality of that situation and it's and it's it's beautiful too you know and like it's kind of, it's almost like a little subversive because it's quiet you know like you have that intense Ludwig Gorenton score leading up to it and then just quiet and it's like a very kind of you know again beautiful look at a horrendous terrifying thing you know and I think that just recontextualizes to that this power on its own necessarily is dangerous obviously but it doesn't have to be a weapon but then when your hands on it that's when it becomes this weapon of mass genocide and they talk about that too, like unleashing this very powerful natural force, but it's not meant for us. But Rascal, come on, give us your take. Oppenheimer is fucking fantastic. From every single angle, that movie is goddamn beautiful. The cinematography, the score, the script. Actually, I take that back. It's not perfect. It's almost perfect. It's fucking awkward at some points. That Sex scene shit with Florence Pugh and Cillian Murphy. I could kick Christopher Nolan's ass. I think part of that is just that we don't see Kelly Murphy's penis because we see Florence Pugh's boobs like right there in 70 millimeter. <laughs> but Murphy's like, ah, oh. it's even though like Murphy's a guy who's who's exposed himself. So I don't know why he's not doing here, especially when this movie's already having an R rating. Give us the frontal cut. He was like, nope, we don't want this movie to make too much money now. It's just like. In the midst of, like, all of this drama and shit, you have, like, these three super awkward nude scenes, and it's like, what the fuck are we doing here, bro? I think that's why, like, I gave it five stars on Letterboxd. I would have given it a 10 out of 10 in a review, but, like, I guess they fit? I don't know. Like, I don't know if he was trying to, like, just keep us uncomfortable, because, like, a lot of the, the movie is very uncomfortable, because it's Oppenheimer, like, going through the motions. Like, he's trying to figure out, I'm going to do this very devastating thing, and how am I going to live with this? It's very me, me, me. Like, and after, like, watching the movie and reading about Oppenheimer in school and shit, like, he was a very, very arrogant, selfish human. 
I don't care how they spin it, how they, you know, oh, you know, I didn't want to do this. I didn't mean to do that. Like, no, nah, bro, you're selfish as shit. And that's okay. Like, it's human. That's fine. It's who you are. So I guess, like, if it, I don't know. But beyond the, the really awkward movie scenes, I thought that movie was fantastic. Like, especially that last hour where they're, you know, at the Senate hearing, I genuinely enjoyed that. I felt like I was in a history class almost. You're just watching this very very insane historic moment shift from we made the atomic bomb to people who are shitting on the guy who made the atomic bomb because he might be a communist but it shows you what those times were like and they say that history repeats itself and honestly in the political climate that we're in now it's still the same way if you do not think a certain way you're a communist you're a socialist you're against capitalism you're against the united states of america you're not a good person like, you become a political enemy in such a fast way in the United States that it actually makes me sick. And what, it's like 70 years since that hearing that this is still how politics are played out in this country. Like, you can go look at that movie and then go look at the state of the United States right now, and it's basically the same shit. You just took away Jim Crow, gave certain people rights, took their rights back, gave it back to them. Like, it's a very strange thing that you can study at school and understand that this country has just always been fucked up. Well, I think it's interesting because I probably learned about World War II well, like 20 years ago now, and the movie is not a primary source in any way of historical accuracy, but I don't think I learned that the Germans were beaten, Hitler was dead, and then we dropped the bomb on Japan because we wanted to, you know? I think the history of that, and I don't know how the hell history is taught now because it's crazy out there in terms of what people are trying to take out of books and whatever but that is not what i think a lot of people learned or have learned that history is very important and i think you could easily and unfortunately see a world today where if a certain contingent of dream you know conservative politicians uh got into a unilateral position of power you would have similar things like mccarthyism and these against communists but they would make it about like woke shit because they're fucking crazy you can see how how to your point this stuff repeats itself and i think that's where also uh, no one with this movie is very much making a statement about all right now i also don't like the arguments after oppenheimer that people kept trying to come up with like nobody was justifying the atomic bomb uh, this movie didn't justify the atomic bomb if anything this movie was, was like holy shit Regardless of what was happening overseas in Japan, in China, this was still fucking horrible. Like, there was another way to handle that. It's like people on the internet aim to bring out the most. And, like, I know, like, we're a cynical group of guys. I get it. But, like, it was like I logged on and, like, holy shit. It was like from every fucking corner. You know, they bombed this and they did that. Like, bro, everybody in World War II committed a fucking war crime. Like, whether you want to believe it or not, whether you want to accept it or not. Like, everybody who was involved in World War II, America, Italy, Germany, Russia, Japan, China, like, everybody was committing a war crime. We just talk about the Holocaust and the atomic bomb a lot more than all the other war crimes, but they still happened. Regardless of if you want to touch base on them, like, I don't know, man. Making men touch their children and then killing them and their children is kind of off the wall, too. So, I don't know. It's just, it's so fucking weird how... Like, we know the U.S. is the bad guy. We know that, like, regardless. And I'm pretty sure they're listening. So, hi, FBI agent. But 
at, at the end of the day, like we know that the U.S. has done some of the most reckless, dangerous, over-the-top war crime shit ever. So I don't see any point about arguing about it or trying to justify what one country did to another. The whole thing was fucked up. All we can justify is that Hitler was the bad guy. Fuck him. I hope he's burning in hell and just getting like the shit beat out of him along with Ronald Reagan. Like I, it's all I genuinely hope is happening down there. I can say an absolute amen to that. I think it just goes back to the thing we talked about in Barbie at the beginning, how people go into these movies looking to misinterpret them. They are looking for beef. And, you know, we, we might be uh, prone to cynicism here, but we're also not going in specifically to hate a movie or look for things that are going to piss us off. And I don't think Oppenheimer could be more clear with its messaging if it tried. And on that note, I think that ought to do us for this comeback episode of Cineskeptics. Uh, boys, this was great. We can all one by one do our sign-off, plug our Twitters or any other social media we might be on. My name is James Preston Poole. You can find me on Twitter at James P. Poole. You can see my writing at a Full Circle Cinema, Discussing Film, uh, The Cosmic Circus, and a few other websites. Before we go any further, I just gotta give this disclaimer. Uh, Twitter's dead, X lives forever. Right, right, X. Sorry, forgot. <laughs> so you can find me on X at NatCram92796 and on Instagram and threads at NatCram927. This is Jacob. Find me on LinkedIn, Threads. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Midsummark. That is Midsummer with a K. Side note, you can also find me on Threads as well um, as James Preston Poole. Same for Blue Sky. You can find me on X. You know, X going to give it to you. At Rascal F. Kennedy 1. Don't forget the 1 on the end. Because Rascal F. Kennedy, although unbanned, is dead for now. That's all I'm going to give you. Everything else is like super personal. Love you guys. Very sorry. And Jordan just hit a bomb. So good night. Have a good week. Fucking love you guys. All right. Thank you all for listening and stay skeptical. We'll see you in the next one.